Massive thank you as always to patrons Sarah Turner, Rebecca Johns and Justin Harper. And this week's random call out goes to patron Seamus O'Connell. You can support us too at patreon.com forward slash it's not just in your head or follow us on social media and help spread the word. Today, substance abuse counsellor Ekoi Hero talks to Carl Eric Fisher, addiction psychiatrist and author of The Urge, Our History of Addiction. Carl draws on his own experience as a clinician, researcher and alcoholic in recovery to trace the history of the phenomenon that's troubled us for centuries. His book shows us how addiction has come to be deeply misunderstood and stigmatized in our times, despite being profoundly ordinary across recorded history, and how an honest reckoning with our past successes and failures with addiction can light a better way forward. In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can't have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. What's the difference between addiction and a problem? Yeah, it becomes very necessary to closely interrogate what we mean by addiction when we start making those types of distinctions. And there's so much cultural and social baggage attached to the term addiction that, as you saw in the book, it needs a lot of investigation to unravel. If anything, the book is a process of um, undoing. I I wanted to at least get clear on, and in many cases, uh, try to see through and counteract some of the um, misleading connotations that get attached to words like addiction. So before I go too far afield on some big tangent, I'll just say in response to your question about um, what's an addiction and what's a problem, there's one view that there isn't a meaningful distinction. There's one view that um, everybody has problems with Mm -hmm. self-control, that um, what we call addiction is really a universal issue, uh, Mm -hmm. that um, the, the phenomenon of people keeping on using despite the urge to stop and despite the intention to stop um, could just as easily be applied uh, not only to things like, um, you know, frantic activity and seeking external validation or perhaps eating, but even anxiety disorders where worry becomes a, a sort of um, intentional activity. Uh, and I, there are some people in a more mindfulness-oriented uh, framework that are portraying it that way, and I think with really good effect that um, uh, there, there's an intentional or um, volitional character to a lot of mental suffering. So what is the difference between that and substance use problems? Um, uh, and at the same time, you know, I'm a person in recovery from uh, addiction and I, I consider that to be sort of membership in a, in a particular type of um, group. <laughs> you know, it's a, there's something special about it. There's something that is um, extraordinary about the lengths to which some of us go uh to hide and protect our our use patterns. So it's almost paradoxical from the outset that um, it's sort of a spectrum condition, but then also there's this really deep identification at one end of the spectrum. Uh, So I I, I tend to think of it almost more metaphorically than I do as a a really clean cut uh, sort of objective scientific classification. Yeah, and there's definitely uh, the bit in the book where you talk about essentially the power of self-deception where you're talking about your own process of, of um, uh, realizing there is an issue around alcohol. But this idea, like you say, when you, <laughs> you start talking about addiction, it opens up all this stuff. And one of them is that sort of insight we all have to the ability to sort of um, deceive ourselves <laughs> and how mm-hmm. good we are at it. And that and what was the thing? Was it about like uh, evolutionary? It may well have been useful because it's about sort of, I guess, worst case, it's about deceiving others. But at best case, it's about learning how to sort of yeah. convince others so that you sort of work together or or something like that. Yeah, that's the Trivers do. Uh, so Robert Trivers is a um, noted evolutionary psychologist who says that uh, we developed um, denial and self-deception because it was a way of better deceiving others that when you yourself are convincing yourself 
of the thing, then it's easier to seemingly authentically portray the thing to someone else. And that really resonated with me because I, I, the, the background is I had a, uh, um, I had an episode where I was really struggling with alcohol and stimulants during my psychiatry residency training after med school. And then my program director and a few other people met with me in an intervention and I basically told them, oh, no, no, no. I'm sure you think it's a substance problem, but it really isn't. I, I just want to let you know that I'm just kind of burnt out and, uh, you know, medicine is broken and uh, I'm getting crushed under the gears of this like free for all for profit system. And all that was kind of true, <laughs> but yeah. it was also, it was also a lie that I was having uh, substance problems. But the thing that struck me about that evolutionary psychology portrayal is that I really identified with that. I really think there was at least a big part of me that believed in that moment that I was telling the truth that the thing that was most significant um, was the bullshit I was shoveling and not, not so much the fact that I was uh, having half a dozen drinks every night minimum and then taking Adderall in the morning to recover from it and just barely getting by in training. Right. And it's it sort of, um, I guess, the dark side of uh, talking <laughs> because there's, you know, this is one of the things we talked about a lot in the, in the podcast, which is that a lot of, say, politics, for example, or politicians, everyone's ultimately sort of sick of politicians talking. They want to see action. And the thing about the sort of self deception thing is, or, you know, deceiving others is that that is the power of, of words, or at least a, sort of uh, one of the powers of words is that you can just um, spin tales and then do something entirely different. And then the podcast sort of sits in that sort of weird place because obviously um, when talking about sort of mental health issues and or sort of politics related to it, that <laughs> is the cardinal sin of it's just more talking um, and what's action. And I think that what's intriguing particularly towards the end of the book is where you're talking about you know what actually has to change um in terms of law in terms of the medical establishment for for there to be a much more um useful uh way of addressing addiction and and recovery and the thing about it I, you know, the sort of positive spin on all of it really to me was the thing that seemed to um, happen throughout time was the sort of power of mutual aid or the power of groups of people. And like you said about sort of identifying with a, a group of people or like um, c concepts of identity and they're all wrapped up in um, in the group or, or how you get on with a group of people, or how you identify, and I thought it's kind of interesting in general. I, I, actually, I'm sort of just going down a rabbit hole here. I'm not sure if I even got a question at the end of it. Just more uh, saying things, just just in case it's eliciting any sort of uh, thoughts on the subject. No, it's definitely interesting. I guess I'm wondering. Um, let me ask you because I'm curious about your perspective because you were just talking about the the cardinal sin of talking rather than doing. <laughs> What, what was your, I mean, I'll, I'll sum it up by saying my takeaway at the end of the book was that, yes, there are these concrete practical interventions and policies that we could enact tomorrow if we could wave a magic wand to do it. And that would save countless lives when we're talking about addiction. And mm -hmm. also it, it won't come from some technocratic fix within our current system, what we really need is a change of consciousness around addiction, but also about the way we think about mental health and relating to our suffering. So um, I guess I was wondering like what your, what your reaction was to that uh, when you talk about the cardinal sin of talking, because it makes me think I almost feel a little defensive. Like, uh, <laughs> well, I do think that talking is the thing we need to do. No, like, but I just, so. I think, I think it has both things. It's like, it's not, I think it's one of those things where, as you were saying, that, that it has the power to do both good and bad if that's not too clumsy a way of breaking everything down, right? Which is that on one hand, there is this power of self-deception and you can do that through through talking. But clearly what works um, for a lot of people is, well, possibly everyone, is 
um, connections with other people. And a lot of the time, the connections with other people is talking about your experiencing experiences, listening to their experiences. So it's not necessarily that I think uh, talking is um, <laughs> it's bad. Like I think it's a key part of the ingredients of any sort of sense of fellow feeling or connection with the world. It's just also one of those things about putting things into action, right? Like that that seems to be the right. the, the rub of addiction to some degree as well, right? Is that you have that you can spin whatever story you like to maintain the the actions and 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 sort of that there's a real push and pull that sort of really scary um tension that you communicate through your sort of own story but also just looking at addiction this and listening to patients this idea of like this complete you know obviously it's a certain kind of um addiction there's lots of people who don't say that they have a problem and they you know, they don't have any issue with what they're doing. They don't mind it. Whereas there's the sort of, the more terrifying version is the person who wants to stop but can't. And they're just mm. watching themselves be a witness to the thing that they're doing. And this is where that sort of tension of action and um, dialogue sort of meets. Yeah. Um, yeah, that is, you know, the, the thing that comes to mind about talking is... Um, that's the primary intervention that we have in mental health. We also have medications, of course, and there are group-based uh, treatments that try to harness this power of interconnectedness and connecting with other people. Uh, uh, but really what we do is we talk, and we, we, we have a specialized way of talking, and we, we train and even uh, conduct research on what is the kind of psychotherapy that actually leads to change? Um, and I, you know, I read that stuff and I study that stuff and I think it's valuable. Um, but what is the difference between that and mutual help? You know, throughout history, uh, we've we've oscillated between these different responses to addiction. Sometimes the formal medical interventions like uh talk therapy have been privileged. Sometimes medications have been privileged sometimes the um you could almost call them populist uh mutual help grassroots um uh informal movements have have dominated i you know i think we um addiction is a funny test case for a lot of uh mental health treatment because um it has so many different stakeholders and it's so politicized and it's so mm -hmm. in many ways responsive to social and cultural factors like despair and alienation and dislocation. Uh, and, and one of the lessons I really like about um, uh, the responses to addiction, especially viewed through a historical lens, is that we need it all, that it's not, it's not all talking and it's not all uh, formal medical responses and it's not all uh, some sort of policy tweak from the top down, like adjusting alcohol taxes. Like we need all of those things to uh, um, effectively uh, respond to the challenge. You know, right now we're faced with tremendous, I'm sure your listeners are familiar because this is a mental health oriented podcast, but uh, we hit a milestone of a hundred thousand overdose deaths a year in the United States. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's astounding. It's unthinkable. I wrote a paper in 2019, where I said we've just reached uh, the milestone of 72,000 deaths. That was three years ago. Uh, it, yeah. it's the pace of it is so completely out of control. There's almost like this funny disjunction between like the the available um, policy levers that were even given um, and the the actual scope of the problem. Um, it's just really daunting. So, like, it's really maddening to me that people are not running out there and just doing everything possible. Anyway, but I'm getting a little away from your <laughs> original question, so I'll stop there. No, no, it's all good. Um, sorry, Koi. Oh no, I was just about to say, you know, from. I mean, I I come to you know my line of work from a very I guess I've been told an unusual angle because I was. I started at the harm reduction aspect. So that wasn't something that, you know, I, I changed to eventually. Um, 
And I guess especially, you know, for somebody my age, I'm in my 40s, you know, people are like, oh, that's that's one that's really unusual. Um, and also, you know, because I came to you know, drug policy has always been, you know, interesting to me because my first interest, one of my earliest interests as a child has been like disease and public health. You know, so mm-hmm. when AIDS came around in the 80s, you know, I was still in elementary school. But, you know, that's mm-hmm. the one thing about having access to college libraries and college librarians, especially back then was, you know, you, you I had an outlet for that interest. And so, you know, I basically became interested through like, you know, researching AIDS and HIV uh, that mm. was probably the first time I heard about, you know, needle exchange. And I had always been interested in medical, you know, um, topics. So, yeah, I, I knew about, like, I had heard about, like, IV drug use. But, you know, I at that age, I knew enough about, like, blood-borne infections that that made all the sense to me. Mm. You know, and, and also growing up, like... You know, I grew up with a very visibly dysfunctional, you know, uncle who, you know, basically, you know, from the moment he got up to, you know, when he went to sleep was, you know, drinking and and inebriated on on a daily basis. And watching him and watching other people drink and not have an issue, you know, from an early age, I was like, it can't be the alcohol. Mm. It has to be something else. Mm. And so I basically kind of, you know, all and and then like as I grew older, you know, and especially around, you know, I've always been kind of a a risk averse personality. So a lot of it was just like watching, you know, my friends and their experience with drugs and going like okay like it, it definitely isn't just the substance there's something else happening and i you know and and looking from like you know coming out and growing up i think during the aids epidemic where you know and it was also the just say no era mm. and i remember just being like, okay, like this just say no thing clearly isn't working. It's not working with any of my friends. You know, it, it's not necessarily working with society. And, you know, and that was also kind of like with the AIDS panic came like, you know, this really strong push for like abstinence only education in, in sexual health, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just remember thinking like, no, no, that doesn't work. Like you need to give people information so that they can you know better adjust their behavior based on their risk rather than kind of like you know building more intrinsic shame in people around you know whether it's sexuality or whether it's drug use so that's kind of my background in and in how i came to be interested in the topic because you know i don't personally have a substance use disorder history but it's also one of those things where like you know growing up around a lot of friends that did you know i could see in my own like i i guess one aspect is that i don't necessarily you know i i tend to kind of lean towards more that like compulsive behaviors or like chaotic behaviors are part of human psychology Mm. to my mind it's one of the the very relatable uh parts of the book even at the beginning or the conclusion is this idea of that essentially everything is on a spectrum all behaviors are on a spectrum Uh, a person who is um voluntary or not takes the label of being an addict is ultimately just just the same as everyone else. It's just uh, for X, Y, Z reason, multiple reasons. Um, it's being expressed, you know, in a particular way, and that any of us at any point in our lives could um, face any of this stuff. And if and when such a thing happens, you know, how do we conceptualize it, or how do we deal with it? And 
to my mind, your approach makes total sense, which is like there isn't just this one way <laughs> of thinking about yeah. all of this. There are multiple ways of thinking about it um, and there are multiple ways of re recovering from it. And it's, I think, I, th I can't remember if this was in one of your podcasts or um, it was at the beginning of the book, but you were just saying addiction ultimately is an idea. And as a sort of opening um, statement, I was like, wow, okay, you know, that's kind of interesting. Mm, yeah. No, thanks for picking up on that. That That is, uh, it's early in the book. It's a major theme of the book, along with this notion that addiction exists in all of us. Uh, and I think those two topics, the 1980s and um, all of those abstinence-oriented campaigns around sex or drugs or otherwise, um, there's a way that's related to this notion that um, addiction exists in all of us. Uh, I, I, I really emphasize that because it's been such a common tendency to turn it into an us-them binary, right. as if there's some sort of bright essential line dividing up the supposedly healthy from addiction. And um, I was surprised to find that that's a relatively recent uh, historical phenomenon that um, earlier thinkers even as recent as 19th century medical writers, who I think had a better sense of this than we give them credit, but all mm -hmm. the way back to uh, philosophers and theologians who who look at the problem of will and self-control through a different lens, um, conceptualize it more as like that core volitional question we were talking about earlier, the why do people keep on using despite the urge to stop? Um but the, the you know the way that relates to the you know the 80s in particular, just the general notion of um uh the 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 ideologically driven like abstinence oriented approaches is um it, it's almost a natural uh corollary to the um the the notion of dividing up into healthy and addicted to also divide up drugs into good drugs and bad drugs and that certain types of drugs are associated with the wrong sort of users and then um that lends itself to a sort of um polarized binary around it yeah, it, it enables the use of both the notion of addiction and just drug use in general as a weapon um, mm -hmm. in various forms, which is definitely what was happening in the 1980s. I mean, it's well, well documented by now just how um, the tail was wagging the dog when it came to drug problems. Mm -hmm. It was the Reagan administration before there was any sort of significant outcry or concern Um latched on to drugs and you know crack actually came a bit later um at first it was uh that they, they some political opportunism because there were these um largely southern parents groups that were really concerned about um cannabis and they thought that jimmy carter and also ford and also even to an extent that like, people in the nixon administration were too easy on that it was real when i talked to experts about that time period because some of those folks are still alive um mm -hmm. When I talked to policy experts who served in, say, for example, the Carter administration and earlier, um, it, it was amazing the way they described the transition. Then it was almost as if like, they, they they stepped out onto a different planet, um, because like from Ford to Carter in the 1970s, people played nicer with each other in terms of drug policy. It was much more, and there are problems with this too. I mean, there's a sort of like technocratism about like. Um, trying to find the right top-down way to control people's use, but that, I mean, it was it was better than the Reagan administration. Right? <laughs> um, you know, they were they were working practically on like, okay, well, what is the real harm of cannabis, and do we really need to be so tough on it? Blah blah blah. And then it was all of a sudden, bang! Every clear the decks, all the experts fired, brand new people come in, and it was like a real it was a real inflection point in the so-called war on drugs. Um, I mean, it's just like really, I, I grew up in that time too. So I think it's like really vivid to think about like the eighties and the nineties and just how extreme some of that messaging was. Yeah, it was, I mean, you know, that was a big, big start, I think in understanding how you know because one of the things that i do really appreciate about your book and part of why you know i was like oh we should totally interview this author is i feel like it's vital that people understand you know kind of like the historical trajectory of drugs mm -hmm. and how that's never been this cohesive thing 
uh, you know, attitudes have, have changed, policies have changed over time, and how that's impacted, you know, what essentially are, you know, people in need of some kind of assistance, oftentimes. Yeah. And how and how that's you know how and how like you know criminal well like the um historical aspect of because I think it's really there there is a huge political you know expedience aspect to issues around you know, your sex and disease and you know drugs and and what we call vices right yeah oh the vice stuff is so interesting um. And how deep that is in American culture in particular. Yes. But also more generally. I mean, like the the way people talked openly about vice and the relationship to vice, uh, especially in the so-called progressive era, you know, post-Civil War, mm-hmm. 1880s, 1890s, and then the way all of those things shifted uh, in the early 20th century. Um uh, uh, there's so many ways we could go with that, but I just like the, the way things were labeled as a vice and the way in many cases, powerful corporate interests played an active role in shaping what we thought was a vice and what we didn't think was a vice, uh, where we yeah. located the problem, uh, when we had different sort of complex social issues. Um, right. uh, and- I think, I, you know, we often, we, we lose sight of that. Uh, we lose sight of how, um, what we consider to be a vice is not, um, uh, you know, just like what you were saying before, Liam, like it's an idea. It's not, it's not some sort of essential fact. It's not a natural kind that exists through the ages and it's just bequeathed unto us. Right. It's not like some kind of natural law, like gravity. Right. Correct me if I'm sort of misremembering this, but the bit that sort of maybe sounds obvious was the part where you were saying that actually the, the the substances that have done the most harm are the ones that are sort of above the line, above board. They're the the legal ones, and or you know, tobacco, alcohol, and or they're you know under the category of um, medical, and that is sort of fascinating, right? Because the concentration, the focus, sort of politically at least, is always on. Um, Again, it's always, always sort of the the individual who uh, is either to blame for their, you know, historically, I guess speaking, sort of their their poor moral worth, or it's like, or, or no, it's not that. It's the individual is diseased. Um, it's fascinating that again, this sort of over the history over a period of time, attitudes have changed, and where the sort of uh, finger of blame is being pointed is changing now i guess the question for that uh, bothers me is um is it progressing all in the right direction is there such now a body of evidence about things that that can ultimately um overpower sort of political stories you know you're talking about america in the 80s is there sort of enough evidence that something like that couldn't happen again? You know, the scientific community could sort of like point at all these studies and go, okay, no, we're not going back in that direction. Or or are sort of um, politics and these sort of meme or mimetic stories that take hold of a population stronger than that? Uh, I don't. I think anything's possible, Liam. <laughs> not to <think laughs> about it. Uh, I, you know, these things tend to move in cycles. And... Uh, I, I found remarkable similarities. Um, you know, it's, it's not like uh, anti-drug racism or anti-drug um, prohibitionism was born in the 1980s. It wasn't born with Richard Nixon. It wasn't born in the 1920s when uh, uh, opioids and cocaine were first uh, essentially outlawed, at least tightly regulated. They're outlawed for the wrong sorts of people, essentially. Um you know these these things tend to move in cycles because uh, drug use and addiction are some of the most complex social problems we have. Mm-hmm. It, it, even as I say this, I want to just say not all drug use is problematic. So <laughs> let's be clear yeah. that I'm not saying that. But um, you know, problematic substance use and addiction, which are not the same thing, 
um, are some of the most complex social problems we have. And so uh, there, there tends to be this almost like if you can imagine a chaotic pendulum, if you remember that, I just took my son to a science museum. So I'm thinking of how like if there are multiple centers of gravity, the pendulum kind of like spins around in this like really wonky and difficult to predict way. Mm. Uh, like it's, it's not like it's a, it's a polarized. It's not like there are two poles. It's um, there, there are all these different stakeholders. I sort of glancingly mentioned before there's like the prohibitionist drive, but then there's also this sort of clinical drive. And then there's this related but separate reductionistic drive. And then um, there's always been mutual help groups going back way before 12 step groups in AA. And so they, you know, I, I think that in one of the points of the book is that um, things go best when everyone finds points of connection and humble synthesis and recognizes that it's a complex multi-level problem that needs to be addressed across all those different levels. Um, but more often than not, because of everyday human greed and hatred, and ignorance, uh, we wind up um, swinging between sort of extreme and oversimplified views of uh, drug use and of addiction. I do think, Liam, that we're at a um, a promising moment. You know, coming out of such a starkly prohibitionist moment in American history, in particular, um, and with a lot of people coming forward and sharing their experiences of mental health struggles and people talking in a more nuanced way about drugs, um, that there, there is an opportunity for more connection and synthesis now. That is hopeful to me. Um, if we play out the tape a hundred years from now, 200 years from now, I don't know. I think these things, these things tend to run in, in cycles. The best thing we can do is advocate for um, that kind of more humble and multifaceted perspective as best we can with what we're given. Yeah. I think it was, um, reading about um, AA and sort of the initial um, uh, ideas or their sort of concept of it and that they were sort of flirting with spirituality but not necessarily any fixed religion and then how some of those ideas got changed to some degree by politics. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it was just a bit distressing to read because. Uh, I guess that's sort of where my my question was coming from. And previous in previous conversations we've had, um, Ikoi, you've expressed some uh, sort of issues with AA, and I think it fits completely in with this um, this perspective on all of it because it's like, yeah, AA is great, but not it's not great for like everyone. Um, I don't know if you right. want to speak about that a bit more, Ikoi. Well, it's. I, I guess also, you know, one of the things I, I, as a counselor, I have to be very, very clear to not dissuade anybody from their chosen, you know, comfort in how they find community. Um, you know, I do have a, a certain personal I guess, bias against 12 steps. Me, I mean, not necessarily in that I've, it's just, you know, one of the major issues is that I do see a lot of people abused by sponsors, mm. you know, and, and that system kind of being very, very unaccountable. And also some of like the more common talking points that, you know, about like, for example, you know, I, I, I at this at this point, I've lost count of how many people when they talk about like their sexual abuse being asked, like, you know, what was your role? Mm. Yeah, you know, these these kinds of framing that I do think is like really harmful. That can be very common in those circles. But you know, again, like I said, um, you know, it is helpful for some people. Some people find you know great connections, lifelong connections of support. So you know, I think it's just that you know, as with any kind of pure support group regardless of ideology it's whether you find you know people that you can connect with and that that's not a shared experience is not necessarily a guarantee of a good connection I, no i think that's exactly right and i think it's really important to be clear about the potential dangers um 
of mutual help groups like AA. They're completely and totally unregulated, of course. Um, they're totally anarchic. If you go to one group, then you've gone to one group. Um, and right, even they're in, very different between. But even in New York, there are some that are, uh, you know, very rigid and very Christian and um, very traditionalist. And then there are some where they've rewritten the book to be more sensitive to gender issues and pronouns, and um, they make sure that they never call God He, and uh, <laughs> you know, it's mm -hmm. totally different. So. Um, uh, uh, and in that way, it's good, right? Like there, it can, it can be good if you land that. in the right place and you get exactly. the right kind of support to find the thing that works for you if it is mutual help. I do think, you know, it's shocking to me that it wasn't until I really wrote the book that I recognized all the different varieties of recovery. And I think this is only now percolating out. Um, mm -hmm. And part of that is because of this sort of unholy alliance between uh, certain elements of 12-step advocacy in the treatment industry. Uh, through the right. 50s, 60s, and 70s, and that's a place where people get it twisted. They, you know, there's there's the treatment industry, which is largely it largely has been allied with 12-step uh, teachings and populated by um, people who are really committed to a certain type of 12-step um, practice, and that's presented as the only way. I mean, I have quotes in there from people, again, back in the 80s, in the abstinence-focused 80s. Yeah. There, I mean, it's, uh, still, it's, it's still a dominant force in treatment. You know, it's, yes. It's somebody yeah. that has, you know, a, a very, I'm very strong harm reduction leaning. It, it's sometimes very difficult to be in, in that space. Yeah, totally. But, um, you know, I think it's only now that certain treatment providers at treatment centers like rehabs are starting to bring in mutual help groups that are not AA. Um, yeah. And, and there's and not very in, many of them. I mean, there's not very many. Hopefully there's more of it because, you know, I see in the, in the writings and in the, like, if you look at like say counselor magazine, there's more of this appreciation for the many paths of recovery. I think that's so important. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of that harshness and like ideological rigidity, I think, came more from the alcohol and drug addiction treatment industry um, mm -hmm. and not from AA. And then it gets attributed to AA. Uh, you know, in well, other I words, think it's it, kind of like it, a, a cycle. It's a feedback cycle, I think, in mm -hmm. a lot of ways, you know, because like at my facility, I was one of the only I, I think I was the only counselor that didn't have you know a 12-step background I mean one mm. I was also you know one of only two counselors that didn't have a, a personal history right but out of the two of us you know the the other person was really really familiar had gone with family etc right right right, right, yeah, right. So, yeah so no I think that makes sense that like it there's a feedback mechanism where the the predominant social and cultural mores locally or globally come back to influence the groups and the way that things are practiced um you know one example of that is the disease idea um right. you know a, a lot of people attribute the disease idea of uh addiction to mm -hmm. aa or to 12 step groups in general and i i think that's not true if you look at the historical record actually they're the early founders we're very careful about using medical metaphors. Um, mm -hmm. And it's almost like a the notion of disease uh, came about as a result of advocacy that wasn't quite AA, but it was done by people who were in AA. And then there was a sort of like weird communication with them. And then... Um, well, I think it point. was a clumsy attempt to destigmatize. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know how well it worked. Yeah, I agree that it's clumsy because like if they didn't use the notion of disease, maybe all that energy would have achieved the same outcome because, um, you know, that advocacy did force open the doors of hospitals. Like a lot of what we're talking about is um, sort of like the downstream consequences of the medical profession totally abandoning the care of treatment with addiction earlier in the century. Uh, mm -hmm. So like there was a lot that needed to be corrected um, like hospitals weren't treating people and there was no funding for any sort of like recovery support or care. And, um, it was very, very stigmatized. Um, but like, do you actually need disease to say that? I mean, my experience is that I, 
I've written in the process of um, talking to people about this book. Uh, I've written about disease. There's one of my first things was a was an essay in the New York Times, and um, uh, I got all these angry comments from people who thought I was taking shots at AA. Um, because they they just associated the notion of disease with AA, and they said, you know, I'm in recovery 20 years, and um, you must not understand what's going on, and how could how dare you insult my recovery? And that's not at all my intention. Um, and it's a really complicated um, interrelationship there between that kind of advocacy and like what is like what is assumed to be like an AA idea. Um, that I think ultimately like takes a lot more space to unpack than maybe a 800 word guest essay. Um, right. I mean, but, well, uh, like Bill W was an advocate of psychedelics, <laughs> you know, but, big time and B12 yeah. and um, mm-hmm. intensive psychotherapy or maybe yes. it was B6. I forget. He got really into one B vitamin. He just thought that, that there was one particular B vitamin that if you mega dosed it, it would cure alcoholism. <laughs> Is it is it the one that causes the um the um, suddenly I'm having a, a a blank moment, but there's the one B vitamin that drinking really depletes. Yeah, no, niacin is usually depleted, and so yeah, is um, it is it that is did he? I don't know it? which one he specifically got okay. hung up on because it was only like a brief way station on his way to psychedelics. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah but I mean, but you episode. know. Yeah, I I think as with anything, right, you know, what the original intent isn't necessarily, it's an evolving ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I mean, I've read a lot on, on, you know, Bill W and the history of AA, because I do believe, you know, that if I'm going to be critical of something that I really need to (laughs) be read up on it, right? Um, Yeah. And again, you know, I think I think one of the things that I can say positive about 12 Steps is that for its time, it was absolutely revolutionary. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's just that it didn't necessarily evolve in the long run as a community. Yeah, I don't know about that. Honestly, I I would push back a little on that because I think that there is evolution in different uh, domains. Um, and, and you know, if you look at the research, uh, it is very difficult research to do, as I'm sure you have looked into and have read about. But um, you know, the people like John Kelly um, and Keith Humphreys and like the big researchers who try to do objective analyses of what actually happens when you uh, connect people with AA um, is that, uh, you know, I think they would acknowledge there are these problems. There's exploitation, sexual and otherwise by sponsors. And there's some groups that are really um, sort of gaslighting in the way they focus too much on personal responsibility. And um, there are groups that are really, I, I think maybe even a greater form of not, I mean, we don't have to rank it. I mean, yet another serious form of harm is, anti-medication stigma, which is really mm-hmm. fatal during um, an overdose epidemic. Um, but like even acknowledging all those problems on balance, when you study the effect of referring people to AA, it does more good than harm. So I'm fully in favor of criticizing um, some of the current shortcomings in the way it's um, both institutionalized in our treatment system, as well as just what it's like on the ground. And I think people probably benefit from getting introduced to it. And so I recommend most of my patients like check out a few meetings if it works for you. Mm. Well, I mean, I think, I think my main issue with it is that, you know, it became such a dominant force in treatment yes, and that it wasn't just, you know, if it was, if it stayed in the scope of practice of mutual help, I think it would have been a lot more beneficial. Yes. Then I completely and totally agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. It's so, I mean, it, it has crowded out other options and even created sort of an, you know, an ideological overcommitment to one model. So right. not only is it one size fits all, but we've had these controversies ever since the 1970s where any sort of alternative pathways get shouted down and there's huge conflicts and, warring press conferences and character assassination like 
know, I described the, the story of researchers in the 70s right. who who try to talk about some of the different um, approaches. You know, for some people, and we have to be very careful about this, but for some people, moderation works even after severe substance use problems. But, um, uh, you know, some really powerful forces in advocacy and even government tried to suppress that uh, research. And then when it didn't work, called the people killers and amoral um, uh, because it didn't fit with their preferred paradigm. And um, I think, you know, we need all, we need everything we can get. Uh, we need all the potential pathways and sensibly and wisely to engage people with those pathways and to see what works for them. Um, to say, there's a big difference between saying this is this is beneficial to a lot of people and saying this is the only way. And my own, it often is this, it's the, you know, my own confidence in this pathway is so fragile that I have to blindly insist that it's the only possible way that people can recover from a substance use problem. I think that's really dangerous and really um, tragic in a way. And I think it, it kind of, it goes against like basic human psychology, I guess, mm -hmm. is, is kind of what was frustrating my entire life looking at, you know, drugs and how drugs, drug policy and how it impacted, you know, my friends of, you know, many who didn't make it. Well, I mean, thank you for sharing about those experiences. I'm sorry to hear about that. I had, you know, growing up in North Jersey in the eighties and nineties, I had the same experience of people dying from overdoses and not even like fully comprehending the, the scope of it until later in life. Yeah. I mean, one of the probably, you know, with, especially with, you know, because the, the first experience that I've had with like, you know, or exposure to like heroin in within my peers and like seeing it like around people using it was, you know, in the nineties. And that was when a lot of these happened, you know, but like one of the things about like policy, for example, like naltrexone is, is an old, old drug. People think Narcan is some new. Mm brand new, you know, invention that just happened recently. No, it's a really old drug. And I think a lot of how we look at addiction and how we look at drug use and how we look at stigma, you know, if we, if Narcan had been deployed in, you know, because it existed in the 90s, mm -hmm. you know, and, and had we had the wherewithal to, to you know, utilize what we already had back then, how many lives would we have saved, you know, and how many lives we still continue to not save. Oh my goodness. So many left on the table. I, um, so many simple things that we could do to reduce death. I, you know, I want to take the opportunity to plug my, uh, colleague's book, Maya Svalovitz. I don't know if you talked about her. Oh yeah. I've, I've, the... I've, I've read her books though. She's a, yeah, yeah she's very, informative five she's written a great history of harm reduction where she talks about some of those early barriers and incidentally how some of the early harm reduction pioneers were people in 12-step recovery oh absolutely. they were people who were not like caught up in the ideological rigidity at the same time betty like people some people at the betty ford center were saying if you don't go to a you'll never make it other people were like in recovery themselves but then recognized in 12-step based recovery themselves but then recognized the you know you know mm -hmm. the it's better to save a life than otherwise and maybe we can meet flexibly where they are right yeah i mean i also have a buddhist background and so you know that was and listening to you know some of because you feature buddhism in your podcast so i i picked up on a couple of those episodes to listen but um i think that was also maybe the difference in in my baseline approach mm of not growing up, you know, in a Christian moralist kind of philosophy from an early age. Like, you know, one of the biggest takeaways of Buddhism is like, you know, this concept of like not being attached to things, not be trying mm -hmm. to, you know, have uh, a deeper understanding because what, I mean, a lot of times there's, there's a lot of colloquial misunderstandings about like the concept of, you know, the Buddhist concept of like life is suffering or, you know, this concept of attachment because people are like, oh, attachment's good, you know, and it's it's not, yeah, it it's not saying that attachment is bad. It's just understanding what attachment is and the role that it plays in your life. 
But, you know, in some ways, this sort of goes back to the earlier point uh, that addiction is an idea, just all the ideas and concepts that people have in their heads um, can haunt you. Like there's a bit in your book where you're talking about a, a client who's saying sort of quite defeated that, you know, they're, they're questioning whether their alcoholism is uh, genetic, right? Mm. And really... That, uh, you know, it's a science, but for that person, it's a concept. And that's a sort of haunting idea, right? It's like, oh, you know, I'm not, uh, you could replace it with other words, you know, it's like my destiny, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like I, mm-hmm. I, that I am powerless against this thing. And I think um, that sort of training we get through osmosis in our culture does have a sort of profound effect on how we sort of act and react in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, it becomes a shorthand for um, the, a seemingly objective scientific label can become shorthand for something that is really a, a social judgment or a values-based judgment. Um, and that's happened over and over again. Uh, mm-hmm. But genetics was also, by the way, really, we were talking a lot about the 70s and 80s. I guess that makes sense. But um if we're interested in capitalism, but uh, uh, that the genetic narrative was a really powerful one in the '80s. Some of that was just the fact that that's when the science evolved. But you know, I think there's something about that sort of notion of brokenness or fatalism that can be attached to a genetic narrative that um, really took hold. And by the way, it was also really effectively used by uh, growing and highly profitable treatment centers to. Mm-hmm to market their treatments, to say that, you know, because it's genetic, you definitely have this thing and we have the answer and you can't fix it by yourself. Um, But, you know, I've seen people who use the notion of genetics as just one of many factors, like, oh, you know, I'm a little more at risk of this and so I need to be careful. And I think that's a reasonable and relatively healthy approach because there is a genetic contribution to uh, risk for substance use disorders. Um, but I've also had lots and lots of patients who, Liam, this is the example you're probably thinking of, who basically use the word genetic to mean I can't do otherwise. A client who called me and said, they're in the middle of a relapse and trying to engage their motivation. And they say, well, I'm going to drink again. I don't think I'm going to stop because it's genetic, right? That means I have it. That means I can't change it. Uh, and so genetic becomes conflated with a sort of fatalism that has um it's always found some scientific story to attach itself to you know like during eugenics it was a, it was a different story about mm-hmm. fatalism yeah. but it was basically the same core story uh and then there are even earlier analogs in the history of uh science and society um but really is a fundamentally philosophical argument about capacity to choose and capacity to do otherwise yeah. Well, the disease model also has the same kind of impact, you know, because I've had like clients be like, well, if this is permanent and chronic yeah. disease, and, you know? and that's what the evidence says. I mean, like when we, I, I think the disease, the disease label, I don't even use the disease model phrasing because I don't know what a disease model is. I think there's, you know, hundreds of models and right. people think they're referring to one thing and it's actually a lot of different things because it's a double-edged sword because you can use the word disease in these really beneficial ways. You can use it to argue to open the doors of hospitals. You can use it to argue for funding or just a baseline level of compassion um, and treating people like human beings. And then you can also use the word disease um, to be dehumanizing and fatalistic or even to outright use it as a weapon to say, oh, because these people have a disease, that means we have to commit them um, involuntarily. Like quarantine them, right? Quarantine them. The put, literally put them in colonies in the 1900s, 1910s, 1920s, uh, when people, again, during the time of vice um, advocacy and activism around the progressive era, people said, okay, well, you know, we can't, we can't effectively treat addiction, so let's just ship people off to colonies. <laughs> And um, uh, that's totally misleading. You know, we we have great evidence today that people recover at much higher rates uh, than uh, we commonly attribute it. That in some ways, by some measures, people with substance use problems have a higher probability of recovery than other um, forms of mental suffering. 
Uh, mm-hmm. It's just that this brokenness narrative is so um, powerful and insidious that it creeps into um, this sort of like deterministic story. Right. And that that was also sort of blew my socks off as well, reading that, that, you know, most people who who have um, some kind of, uh, is it disordered choice? Well, that was a particular way of phrasing it. But maybe I'm mixing my language here, but it's just that idea that a lot of people who have alcohol issues or other issues just um, find a way to figure it out themselves. I, I don't know, how how's that information collected? I guess that's a, a side thing, but... That's sort of fascinating as well. That there's just a whole bunch of people who are not partaking in, you know, any sort of uh, formalized or informal um, therapy. They're just finding another way, um, probably through other structures, right? Family, job, mm-hmm. friends, right, right, which are you know pathways to recovery, basically. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there are lots of stats on this, and but the bottom line is that most people with substance problems will recover, and most people who, um, if you use the definition of recovery, that's just stable improvements in functioning and purpose in life, um, most people will recover, and most of those don't need any sort of medical help to do so. Uh, so yeah, the Vietnam thing was yeah. fascinating about the, the was it? 20% or 10% of troops had a heroin problem during the war and when they came back and that number dropped dramatically. Right. I mean there's a huge environmental factor and well, that's also yeah. one area that treatment really likes to somewhat ignore in terms of not not necessarily just a treatment industry but in terms of drug policy, you know, because for me like I you know, my experience was working with a lot of housing insecure and homeless people. And, you know, a lot of times it really is difficult for people who haven't, you know, had work history or, you know, education that makes acquiring well-paying jobs fairly, you know, accessible. You know, it really is hard for them to you know, go through treatment and, and to a certain degree, like treatment makes them feel like sobriety is something that if they fail, it's their fault. Right. But, you know, they go out of treatment and they can't find work. You know, Mm. they can't find affordable housing. Yeah. What was the term uh, recovery capital? Is that, that that was used in the book? Yeah. It is incredible that people use that term, but yeah. Yeah. and, And there's, so little services out for people and i mean there's so much gaps in service out for people that you know a lot of times you know if you are having basic survival issues you know a lot of times we kind of ignore that these people are having these issues and then you know when they don't succeed once they leave treatment, you know, the attitude is like, oh, it's your fault. You didn't take the program seriously. When it's like, no, they can't find housing because they can't find a job. Right. And then, you know, we have public health interventions that address those types of issues that address um, uh, the issue of, say, housing or work and other countries have generally done a better job. You know, the famous example of uh, Portugal with decriminalization of amounts of any drug for personal use sometimes gets trotted out as an example of why we should decriminalize. And um, just leaving that question entirely aside, what often gets missed is that Portugal had really, really, really intense interventions for housing and for employment that people who... People, it's not the people just who entered into treatment got, you know, moved to the front of the line. And mm-hmm. um, it's uh, it's so crucial. And um, that is health. You know, one of the phrases right. I really like is health in all. Um, it goes a little farther than, say, social determinants of health, for example, <laughs> just mm-hmm. which sounds a little jargon. Dry. <laughs> yeah. Um, the health is everywhere. Health is about the tree cover in your neighborhood. Health is about um, your access to basic human needs. Yeah, we're gonna have to um, wrap it up, I guess. Uh, um, just because we've hit hit the hour. Ultimately, I thought there was sort of an answer, like whilst reading the book, and the, the the common theme throughout all these sort of difficult moments in time was just that 
you know, people do find a way and normally they find a way with other people. And I think that, you know, the key point in the book is just that, you know, this is a big complex system and it's going to take lots of, um, lots of different solutions and lots of different methods to, to get there. Um, but anyway, yeah, sorry, I realized we've taken a whole bunch of your time up there, extra time. So apologies for that, Carl. But um, yeah, no, thank you no, very no, much. No, for... it, it was a pleasure meeting you too. Yeah. Thanks for the work thank you, you do. Thank you so much. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. And you can hear more from Harriet on her radio show called Interpersonal Update. It's on WBAI at 2.30 EST on Wednesday afternoons and in the WBAI archives.